You're listening to By the Well, electionary-based podcast for preachers recorded on the land of the Wurundjeri people. Greetings, everyone. It's Fran Barber. And Howard Wallace. And we're talking today about some readings from Advent 2, in particular Isaiah 40 verses 1 to 11 and Mark 1 verses 1 to 8. We may have a brief for brief foray into the psalm, which is Psalm 85. Uh, So the second week of Advent, Howard, which is traditionally um, the week focusing on John the Baptist, and in fact, of course, that is who we see Mm. appearing in the Mark Mark reading. But let's begin with Isaiah 40. Yes, and I I think it's fairly obvious why Isaiah 40, 1 to 11, um, has been chosen in this context. although it, it does have some things to say of its own. I mean, it's chosen there because many of the the words, um, the notion of the voice in the wilderness or crying in the wilderness, prepare, etc., um, that sort of sense of preparation is, is part of what's in Isaiah and carries over, as do a number of allusions, verbal allusions, into the, the Mark mm. material and in generally the stories about John the Baptist. But as I said, as I'll say in a moment, I think Isaiah Isaiah 40 adds its own sort of understanding to Advent as we deal with it. Um, We need to put it into some sort of context. Yeah, I was wondering if you could paint the scene for this. Will do. Isaiah 40 is the very beginning of the section of Isaiah that we call Second Isaiah or Deutero Isaiah, um, which goes from chapter 40 through to chapter 55. And the passage that we've got today um, is really in some ways a prologue to the the story that will unfold or the material that will unfold in those uh, 15 or 16 chapters. Um, We are in the time of exile. Uh, The people of Israel um, have already been taken some uh, two generations, 40-odd years beforehand, into exile in Babylon, only some of them, the, more or less the, the hierarchy of society, um, leaving others to cope and, in a way back in the, the uh, land around Jerusalem. Um, people had been taken to Babylon and had settled there under the Babylonians. The Babylonian sort of um, attitude towards conquered people was to remove the hierarchy of society, uh, deposit them somewhere else, usually in a place that's fairly close to the Babylonian heartland so they can keep an eye on them um, and then just let the rest of the society that has been conquered just you know, fare for itself, mm. um, which of course results in a lot of turmoil and, mm. and structural problems. Um, but things have changed in the 40 years that people have been in Babylon because now the, the Babylonian empire is, is waning and the Persian Empire, further to the east, um, is on the rise. Mm. And it's quite clear, I think, to the writer of um, Second Isaiah, and it probably is um, one or a very small number of writers writing consistently through those 15 or so chapters, um, it's quite clear to them that things are going to change in the future because they know, they seem to know, that... Persian attitude towards conquered people is quite different to the Babylonians and, of course, to the more savage Assyrians before them. Um, The Persians, in regard to people who are 
conquered, in the sense, usually smaller nations, are quite happy to let those people remain in their homeland um, and get on with their life, practice their religion and their various other customs, um, provided that they adhere to two general sort of rules. They pay their tribute or their taxes Mm. to the Persian government and they don't sort of um, venture into any sort of insurrection or, or protest. Uh, so as long as they keep the peace, as long as they pay their money, uh, they'll be they can do what they they want almost. Um, and so this I think generates within the writer of Isaiah forty the sort of sense that there will be a possibility of return to Jerusalem soon, mm-hmm. and that's where this passage begins. Now the, the writing itself is not so much about the people, but about God and the scene set in. Isaiah 41 to 11, is in the heavenly court, in God's heavenly world, where God speaks, first of all, a word of comfort for his people and instructs those who will be his messengers to speak tenderly to the people themselves. And we hear various voices crying out certain things. These are heavenly voices, angels, if you want to think in those terms. And the prophet seems to be an observer within this heavenly context because in their thinking, you know, worldly decisions, important ones, are made in heaven and then transposed mm. through people Which like prophets. Which links to something I read <coughs> from Brueggemann and I think that this change in the geopolitical situation you've so mm-hmm. um, well described actually portends a new theological reality for the people. Yes, oh yes. And so, yeah, that, that sort of thin, thin liminal... Uh, space between heaven and earth, mm. y- you know, mm. you can see here. It's it's not a it's not a big difference, and it's a new understand. understanding about God. I mean, they, they um, one of the things that that um, comes through the exile. If you're going to maintain your faith um, as a captive people moved to a, a foreign land, um, you have to develop some sort of sense of the sovereignty of God, mm. uh, of your God, and then you sort of move on to things like, well, God has allowed this to happen because we were sinful or whatever. Um, But then also it implies that God is able to change that sort of thing. So you get a a new sense of of hope being generated within this context. And also presumably a need for the sovereignty of God to be emphasised and remembered because you don't want to be at the mercy ultimately, in any ultimate sense, to the coloniser or to the to the oppressor. Yes, yes. That actually yes. This, God is mm. in charge here and um, is far more powerful yes. than those oppressing uh, us. Of course, I mean, the, the view of the writer of Isaiah 40 is, is not the only one that's there because there were people who had been taken into exile who, for to use our own terms, converted to other religious context yeah. or there were those who you know probably moved towards what we would call agnosticism or mm. you know, almost atheism in a, in a sense um so it's it, important to remember isn't yeah, it? yeah 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 i mean the the, the whole of the it, israelite exile is not sort of unanimous in no sense. just there as are, it wouldn't be mm, now in no. other situations yes, yeah anyway they um there is this hope of of return mm. uh but beside that i mean and beside the issue of sovereignty that we've also mentioned, um, one of the things that does come through strongly in in these first 11 verses of 
Isaiah 40, is also this notion of what we might call grace, and that you know it's comfort my people, speak tenderly to them. And then the image at the very end, as the Lord leads his people on this highway that's to be built back to Jerusalem, Judah, um, he's leading them like a shepherd. Um, they're his flock. Uh, he gather them. It says he'll gather the lambs in his arms. He'll carry them in his bosom, and he will gently lead the mother sheep. So there's this sort of whole shepherd thing coming through, which is common amongst kings, but now being employed in a, in a very tenderly way. I am I am um, quite struck by the. Well, we've used the word tender a lot, and mm. it's there, but this is very evocative um, and touching. Um, language mm. that doesn't stray into the sentimental at all. No, um, no. Uh, I'm interested in. Yeah, it it is a, a gracious one, but there's also you know she has served her term and her oh, penalty yes, is paid. Yes. I mean, <laughs> it's not cheap. Any of no, this. <laughs> it isn't. Um, yeah, uh, and I'm not sure how much we use we echo that sort of tender language around God. Uh, when we we yeah anyway I just think it's mm. something that struck me particularly this year in it's reading the text tenderness again. with justice and yeah 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 and righteousness too yes the other other thing just to note in terms of things that come out of this is is an emphasis on the word of God uh, there are several voices speaking in this sort of context but then in verse eight um, someone reflects or some individual reflects, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. So there's this sort of sense of continuity and consistency um, and eternity to God's sort of promises. In contrast to our um, mortal way of, you know, which is the flower fading and the the grass withering. Um, But it's also, isn't it... um, uh, a part of our mortality is that we forget, you know, mm. um, and this is a call to hope, as you say, but a remembering God's faithfulness in times past. Yes. Yeah. Um, which I think, I think is something that the psalm today mm. echoes. Yes, well, the psalm, um, which has some beautiful words in it, at least I think it is, Psalm well, 85. Yes, it does. Um, the, the lectionary... Um, uh, it's not always helpful <laughs> in the selection of verses because it leaves out a middle section which has to do with um, admitting our need of, of restoration and salvation. But it begins by you know, remembering how the Lord has been favourable um, to his land, to his people, um, but it goes on then to think about the present circumstances where we need restoring, we need sort of revitalising, but then it speaks about the future as well, implies the, the consistency of God in that sort of thing and comes up with, with words like steadfast love and faithfulness will meet and righteousness and peace will kiss each other. Mm. I mean, beautiful imagery. Very beautiful. Um, and faithfulness springing up from the ground like shoots of wheat, etc. And the righteousness looking down from the sky. Mm. Um, there's a sort of a hope for what we might call the kingdom of God. Yeah, and so evocatively speaking Mm. into that um, existential 
sort of disappointment that we all feel mm. from time to time individually yeah. and corporately about the state of the world, the state of yeah. the church indeed, yeah. the state of yeah. our own lives. Yeah. Um, you know, we talked in last week, this is the, a big theme in yeah. Advent. Well, um, I think this is even there in the selection of the readings for today, and, and this happens in the same in the in the Gospel, I think, as you, you mentioned earlier. We've gone from Isaiah 64 last week, which was the disappointment once people had gone back and struggled with various issues. It wasn't all rosy. No, back to the statement of hope of, of a new future. Like in Mark's Gospel, we've moved from the apocalyptic sort of chapter 13 last week. Now we're going back to the beginning again. And there's a sort of sense in which you need to, to maintain, at least in Isaiah, the sort of hope with the reality of the situation. The two must be sort of kept in balance together. And, and it is so yeah. much the hum- that what it is to be human mm. and yes. mortal lives. But we're not dominated by the disappointment. No. Nor do we enter into some dreamy state of the hopes alone. No. And that our context, while God is deeply in relationship with us and cares for us, our situation won't necessarily determine. We can't make God do what? No. <laughs> what we think should happen. Yes. There is a freedom in God's. In God's love, yeah. yes. Yeah. Let's move on to the Gospel, mm-hmm. Howard, which mm-hmm. is Mark 1, verses 1 to 8. So we began a new lectionary year last week with looking at Mark for the year of 2024. The first, some basic um, reminders for people new to the game. It's the first gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, the other two synoptics, Matthew and Luke, use huge chunks of it in their gospel. Um, there is no nativity. We go Straight to the beginning here. I always um, like to think if we only had Mark's gospel, we wouldn't have Christmas. <laughs> no, and I think sometimes that's a good thing to remember mm. when everyone gets a bit sentimental yes. and ridiculous about it. But, yeah, here's a gospel. The very first one mm. didn't bother with all of that. Um, it's got a framework of sort of first century demonology going through it. So mm. um, the good news is about liberation and freedom mm. from affliction, mm. but also quite profoundly freedom from isolation and being ostracised. Um, and, you know, as Ched Myers has reminded us in his older book now, you know, the political edge of this gospel, I mean, they're all deeply political, yes, but yes. this one has particular readings along those lines. So we begin today, the very first line, the beginning of the good news. So the phrase good news uh, was used in... Um, Worldly context in terms of uh, kingly rule and uh, good news was spread and was called that. So they've used a phrase from the writer of Mark has used a phrase quite familiar to people in this context of uh, radical cosmic Mm. change, uh, this good news of Jesus Christ. And then we're straight into Isaiah again as our key lens to start understanding yes. yeah. who this Messiah is. Yes, and we, we, we jump into quotations from Isaiah, but also allusions to Exodus twenty three twenty and to Malachi chapter three, verse one about a messenger yep. coming ahead of um, 
Jesus. Well, Jesus in this context, God in, in yes. other contexts and that. But at the moment we, we need to note that there's a bit of a change going on in the, in the text itself which allows Mark to take um, uh, Isaiah's words from Isaiah 40, verse 3, and apply them to John the Baptist, who's going to be an interesting sort of figure as he is presented. Um, Mark's Gospel starts off, as it is written in the prophet Isaiah, See, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, well, that's not quite Isaiah, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness. And then we have the quote, Prepare the way of the Lord, what John's supposed to be saying. Um, But actually... The Hebrew, if we go back to Isaiah 40, mm. is the voice of one crying, and then we get the the uh, quotation marks coming in, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Um, because that was envisaged in Isaiah 40 as a road that proceeded from Babylon back to Jerusalem mm. through the wilderness, well, supposedly the wilderness. Mm. But now, because John is out in the... <laughs> The wilds, um, and described in a rather interesting sort yeah, of we'll way. Talk about that in a minute. Um, yes, uh, we, he's changed, well, and this is coming through the Greek translation, mm. um, which is slightly different to the Hebrew. It implies that in the wilderness describes um, the one who is speaking, not what he's saying. Oh. So you get the difference? Not really. <laughs> uh, well. Isaiah is originally saying, in the wilderness, prepare. That's yes, where you yeah, prepare the road. Yep. But now what Mark takes up is, is a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way I of the see. Lord. Right. Yeah, interesting. Yes. <laughs> hmm. I have to think about that one, about what, how, what that does to how I preach it. Might not do anything. May not, not do too, too much, but just to be aware of what's happening with yeah, the yeah. misquotations. Yeah, yeah. So here we have those familiar, uh, you know, um, imperatives to prepare the way and that's what, what Advent is about. We've heard about the highway um, mm-hmm. for God in the Isaiah reading. And then this extremely strange figure appears in the text, um, proclaim, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the, forgiveness, for the forgiveness of sins. And I don't think it can be said too often. Please note that... There was a call for repentance of sins way mm. before Jesus and it was mm-hmm. a deeply Jewish practice. And there were baptism before. And there then. was baptism mm. before. So um, so all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him. So that that's a little detail that we overlook. All of all it was sort of this is everybody mm. going to see this strange character. Now, then described clothes with clamel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. So Mark is depicting um, John the Baptist in the line of, not just in the line of Elijah, but as mm. um, uh, another coming of a kind of an Elijah who was yeah. a deeply political prophet. All prophets were political, but in particular he was, he challenged kings. Um, and, you know, we see that um, Mark reports Jesus' public ministry begins after John is arrested by Herod. So this John in the line of Elijah is mm. challenging Herod head mm-hmm. on. We know how that yes. ended. Um, and John was in prison because of his public criticism of Herod's political alliances. So, um, And then Jesus' ministry in Mark begins with his choice of identifying with this strange dissident. Mm. So 
I know someone like Ted Myers would say that if we skip over John the Baptist in a sort of cursory fashion or don't really tackle what he represents, we empty almost really Jesus' political um, radicality. But the way he's described here is so evocative. We can see that those echoes... Ched Myers goes a bit further, and I might have mentioned this four years ago when we started this podcast during this week, but I do think it bears repeating that um, there's profound symbolism Ched reads into... Uh, what Jesus is eating, what John the Baptist is eating here. So he's described as eating locusts, which Ched says points to the prophet Joel. And in his book, locusts came as a plague of judgment on the people. And here we have the beginning of God's new creation being heralded by a prophet who is eating that symbol of judgment then, um, which is a reversal, really. Um, and also the wild honey, not just honey, but wild honey, which probably taps into what you were saying about in the wilderness. Mm. Um, but this honey that probably symbolises the, the land flowing with milk and honey that uh, God promised the people and that John the Baptist is, in the beginning of things, enjoying it, eating it. Yes. I'm not sure I want to sort of totally sort of... <laughs> No, I'm sure you, I thought with, you wouldn't. With but Chad Myers. But, but the other thing that occurs to me here is, which is more about the, the gospel writers, is how Mark is presenting John the Baptist. I mean, he's drawing on bits and pieces um, from, from Exodus and especially from Isaiah 40 yes. and Elijah <laughs> um, in order to create a, a character um, who's somewhat of a wild and sort a context? Of, yes, at the very beginning of the gospel. Mm. I mean, how does the gospel sort of get generated? It's, there's mm. this sort of sense of continuity mm. that the writer is wanting mm. to express in terms of, say, John and the prophets before him. Yeah, and John is out of, is not out of nowhere, and neither no. is Jesus. They no. both follow questions and promises and hopes, and yet at the same time, it's a reshaping of of that former material within a new context. Mm. He wants to tell the story of the beginning of Jesus' ministry in a way that demonstrates continuity and consistency and yet sort of is also arresting. Mm. It's, it's and I word. don't think we can emphasise that too much as preachers in um, poetic and evocative mm. ways to remember that we are here under the hospitality mm. of Israel. Yes. Um, and and the same thing happens with Jesus' death, jumping ahead in the year. <laughs> um, I mean, it's so much based on the, the idea of the suffering servant from Isaiah. Um, yes. So how do you understand what's going on in Jesus? You look to the past and you see the continuity that is, is running through it. So there's one uh, more powerful than I coming. Um, mm. I've baptised you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. And then, we, not part of this text this week, Jesus does submit to yes, this yes. baptism in water. He is baptized, yeah. baptized by John yep. with water, but, of course, the Holy Spirit is there from the beginning. Yes, descending descends upon him. And, and upon the him. statement, you are my son, the beloved, with you whom I am, well, with you I am well pleased, um, which we get later on as, as well um, in the... Transfiguration. 
Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. yes. But it, it's already happening. I mean, the, the, the baptism of Jesus in the Holy Spirit is not just going to wait until Pentecost. No, <laughs> um, no, from the beginning. As Luke portrays yes. it. You know, in, in this gospel, it's, it's moving already within the world. So we've got texts here <laughs> about hope um, and remembering the hopefulness mm-hmm. and about anticipation and... Um, that familiar things are being transformed into something radically new mm. and we're promised in Christ the new creation. In the Peter reading for this second Peter reading, it's about a new heaven and a new mm. earth. So um, this is you know, also an opportunity for those big themes. What does heaven look like? What are mm. we promised? Um, what is it not? Mm. Um and also that it's not just the birth of a baby we're looking no, for, no. which is not in Mark at all. No, so but it's about a, a, a renewal of the whole cosmos, the whole creation. Yeah, and a bringing in of that which is broken mm. and separated and afflicted and forgotten, gathering those situations and those people and that brokenness of the world back in so that wholeness mm-hmm. with God is, is the promise and the reality in the new heaven. Yes. And that's mm. what we all pray for mm-hmm. and that's um, our watchfulness is attending to those mm. occasions where we might be part of that movement. So our waiting during Advent is active. Active. And it's transforming. Um, and it's it, calling us to reflect upon what God is doing. And there's a paradox in it too, again in the Second Peter reading this week, waiting for and hastening. Mm. So there's something around a patience. but an, ad- an impatience. An impatience. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it's a, it's sort of a, mm. a faithful watching mm. but um, an eager one. Mm. Yes. <laughs> so, yes, um, great opportunity to remind people of those, those mm. callings in, yes. into the kingdom. And I sometimes week. wonder, I mean, I was just having this thought, this morning, preparation for this, I mean, whether, you know, how things, you know, Christmas decorations are in the shops already. Yeah, they were on the 1st of November straight after. 1st of November, that was better than what I'd thought. But there's a sense in which, you know, and, and even the, the you know, after Christmas we're going to get the hot cross buns in the, in the shop after New Year or something. Um, you know, there's a sense in which the world uh, wants to predict these sort of things and and you anticipate them, but you know what you're anticipating and you know when yeah, it's yeah. going to happen. And yet, and yet there is a, something in the, the gospel about you know, expect the unexpected. And sit and, with. Yes. Sit with yes. this. And ponder it and, and, and ponder be it. open. Ponder it in it. your hearts, to yes. coin a phrase mm. from a certain woman. Yep. All right. Thank you for right. listening, everyone. By the Well is brought to you by Pilgrim Theological College and the Uniting Church in Australia. It's produced by Adrian Jackson. Thanks for listening.